Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to uh, this Christmas special video about the National Health Service. My name is Sam Collins, Senior Advisor to the Director General. And as I said, today we will be discussing the National Health Service. Despite being perennially short of cash and a mid-table performer as far as health outcomes are concerned, best summed up by the now infamous Guardian quote that the NHS was a world leader on everything except keeping people alive, the NHS is still considered to be a third rail of British politics, one where even touching the issue can cause a political or Twitter storm. Someone who knows all about that is my guest today. I'm delighted to be joined by the IEA's Head of Political Economy, Dr. Christian Niemitz. Look, Christian, neither of us, as people will be able to tell from our respective accents, are natives of the UK, and both of us come from countries that have a very different view of the healthcare system. That is a public service that is very little different, uh, that has very little difference to the welfare department or the education department or any other government department. I don't know about you, but when I first arrived in the UK, I remember thinking about how remarkable the British love of the NHS as an institution was. For example, the 2012 uh, Olympic Games opening ceremony, where uh, almost unbelievably, at least to my mind, the uh, a large part of it was dedicated to uh, this very beautiful image of the NHS as this caring uh, institution where children were jumping up and down on the beds, which I imagine isn't hugely what they're up to uh, in the NHS itself. I can't imagine this quasi-worship of government departments being the case in any other democratic nation, though. Where does it come from and what are your views on it? Yes, you're absolutely right. That was my experience as well. I I sort of knew about it before because I had read about it before I moved here, but I thought that was a bit of a cliche and probably um, only a half-truth. But then living here, you quickly notice, no, this is actually completely true. And um, yes, uh, for for me as well, uh, the healthcare system has always been something that is there to serve a specific role, but not something that you have a particular reverence for. It's uh, it's more like uh, the land valuation office. Um, as long as it does its job, okay, good. But there's no re- reason why you would dance around it and uh, elevate it in any particular way. But no, uh, it's it has simply become part of the national story. Uh, it has become, I think in a previous paper, I described it as a, a founding myth um, mm. comparable to what uh, Independence Day is for the United States and, and the Constitution, uh, or what the what celebrating the anniversary of Bastille Day is uh, in France, celebrating the uh, the French Revolution, which where, where you can also say, uh, hang on, is is that uh, is that really the most rational thing to do, given that the French Revolution was actually pretty horrendous and not something that that you should celebrate? But uh, sometimes countries just have these stories that they tell themselves about themselves uh, that can be about a particular founding figure, um, a historic event and can can be a, a particular character. I mean, you could say that until a couple of years ago, Winston Churchill had the role of a, of a semi-mythologized figure that uh, if you had criticized him, that would have been a bit of a social taboo. That has now changed. Now it's become 
almost fashionable uh, to, to slag off Churchill. But until a couple of years ago, he had that, that role. And the NHS is very much, uh, NHS worship is a bit in that mold. It's, um, it's, it, you, mi you miss the point if you just see it as a healthcare system and uh, one should see it as more of a, a national symbol, a source of uh, of national pride. Under and I have to say, under different circumstances, I would be okay with that. Uh, I if I lived in France, I would not go around telling people uh, that they shouldn't celebrate the French Revolution or uh, or that it wasn't as as great as uh, the celebration suggests. I would say, okay, this this is. Uh, clearly something that that creates a certain team spirit community spirit this is actually a good thing uh, even if it isn't historically accurate i would even in in circumstances like that i would say that if somebody comes up and says well actually if you look at the history books uh, i would think that uh, if somebody did that i would think of that as nitpicking as as mm. pointless pedantry um there's uh but i'm afraid when, when it comes to the nhs i have to be the nitpicker uh, i have to be uh the the party pooper who does the uh, the nitpicking and uh, who gets on everyone's <laughs> nerves, but I th I think there's there's a good reason for doing that, uh, or at least two good reasons. Uh, firstly, um, the NHS isn't just a national symbol; it is also at the same time an actual healthcare system. It is it also does have a role to play in uh, in well curing people and keeping them alive, mm. and it doesn't do that very well. So therefore, I'd say it's dangerous uh, to romanticize the healthcare system in, in the way that other kinds of national symbol celebrations are harmless. If people want to dance around an Olympics team, that's perfectly fine. If they want to glorify an Olympics team, even if, it's, if objectively it isn't very good, that's also fine. Uh, but why does it have to be a healthcare system? Choose anything other than that. And secondly, I, I'd say even uh, this communitarian defense of the NHS doesn't really stand up. Because uh, it isn't a unifying institution, quite far from it. It is actually a source of a lot of divisions that uh, you, you can see this every time that, um, as, as you've mentioned, somebody says something less than favorable about it and you get a, an outbreak uh, of hysteria around that. And you constantly get uh, people accusing their opponents of being somehow enemies of the NHS and uh, that's not something you would expect from a national uh, from a from a national institution that's that's unifying it's quite the opposite it's become a, a very divisive institution yes I wanted to pick up on that because uh, you're right that people seem to get very angry especially online as soon as anybody mentions the uh, the National Health Service or saying it's anything other than the envy of the world or perfect or once you suggest that there could be some very minor reforms that could help uh, improve healthcare outcomes for people in Britain. I mean, I, re I, I remember, I'm, I'm sure you'll forgive me for saying this, uh, you wrote a very quite innocuous paper earlier on in the year. <laughs> Merely, yeah. I, I don't think you said anything but that uh, anyone would consider to be particularly controversial, at least if it was about any other government department. You were saying, I think you said that uh, the NHS did fine, but no, not particularly that much better than anybody else and shouldn't be seen as the as a world leader, which, to be honest, I think is quite a reasonable um, thing to say. And I think if you'd said it about you know how the how the HMRC had responded to uh, the COVID pandemic, nobody would have batted an eyelid. But the response you got was a uh, Twitter storm, and uh, went all the way up to you being personally insulted. I think by the uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party, which is. I think something you should definitely hang your hat on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, uh, 
I'm going to see that my PR work for me. So. Exactly, exactly. I'm not complaining. So, so what makes, why do people get so angry about all this? And, um, and why aren't they equally angry? I mean, I guess you kind of explained it a bit about it being a founding myth, but it just seems odd that they don't get equally angry about other elements of government policy. Yes, it's often about the perceived intentions of the person making that criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, uh, that, that Twitter storm and the Angela Rayner story, that, that was, uh, for me, that was not the first story of its kind. This happens more or less with, with varying degrees. Uh, this happens every time I write something on the subject. There have been predecessors of that. And uh, I remember in one case... It was a paper in which uh, I merely compared outcomes and said in this area, this area, and that area, the NHS is uh, is behind most of its peers. But I didn't actually draw any conclusions from that. I didn't say, therefore, we should uh, have uh, reforms X, Y, and Z, or we should look to systems X, Y, and Z to do it better. Um, I, ju- I just spelled it out, showed the figures, and um, that was it, deliberately didn't uh, spell out any conclusions. I did say, obviously, I have my views on on, uh, on what should follow from that, but that's not, that's not the subject of this paper. And nonetheless, uh, it, it also caused uh, a storm of outrage, especially among doctors in that case. And um, what I noticed is that even though I didn't say uh, the NHS should be replaced by a market system, they assumed that that was my position, and, and correctly, because that is my position. So uh, it's, not, it's not even wrong. It's just that that's, that's not what I said in this particular paper. But it's just knowing that uh, that, that would be my conclusion. That uh, alone was uh, enough to create a storm of outrage. And um, it's not that the most vocal defenders of the system, uh, it's not that they're saying everything is fine. In fact, quite the opposite. That was what I initially assumed, that these people wanted me to say everything is brilliant and that's it. Uh, but actually, then I, I looked up the a lot of these uh, activist doctors have their own blogs or other forms of output. They write about the NHS themselves. I looked up some of the writings of uh, some of some of these people. My assumption was that it would they would just glorify everything. They would just say everything is brilliant. But in fact, that wasn't at all what they said. They were, in fact, uh, in a sense, more alarmist about the NHS. Um, It's just that in their case, it had a very different focus. They would never say there's anything wrong with the NHS as a system. In their case, the alarmism was all about the government is destroying it, the government is mismanaging it. Uh, If you frame it in those terms, um, then you can say that healthcare outcomes in Britain aren't brilliant. That makes it socially permissible, as long as you make it clear you are not blaming the NHS for anything. You are saying the NHS on its own would be the most brilliant system in the world. It's just because of this context. Uh, There's a government that secretly hates the NHS, tries to sabotage it. Um, If you frame it in those terms, then it's not just socially acceptable, but even socially desirable. Uh, And and as I said, some of these people were framing it in those terms, they were more alarmist than I am. They were saying things like, the NHS is on the brink of collapse. It's falling apart. Those are things that I've never said. Um, I never said the NHS is failing catastrophically. I never said it's a catastrophic uh, system. I just said on most measures, it is well below average. It is well below most of its peers. Uh, I think the, uh, the phrase that I've used a couple of times was, 
on outcomes. It's about on a par with the Czech Republic. Now, in absolute terms, that isn't terrible. Uh, if I visited the Czech Republic and I got sick, I wouldn't be terrified of going to, to uh, a hospital. There. It's not that that's a system of Wild West uh, medicine. It's just that you would expect... Um, it's just that the Czech Republic was, uh, until 20, 30 years ago, was a poor country. And um, you would expect Britain to be well ahead rather than about on a par. And, and therefore, it's a bit um, of a sobering finding to, to find that they are more or less the same healthcare-wise. Uh, but that's always what, what, what I said. Um, so it's not that uh, you're not allowed to say some things are going badly in healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's just that that always has to be framed as a defense of the NHS rather than an accusation. Uh, you have to say the NHS is under attack, and that's why we have all these bad outcomes. It's really interesting because uh, that you're saying that people on the left talk about the catastrophic, you know, in, in fact, by the sound of it, do down the do down the NHS more than anybody on the right does. Because uh, actually, and you've you've sort of already alluded to this, but the NHS isn't actually. I mean, free marketeers do sometimes like to go off, you know, go off a bit on one on the NHS and talk about it being disastrous and awful. And but it's actually not the. It's not nearly the worst healthcare system in the world is it it's just it just happens to be mid-table mediocrity um why do you suppose free marketeers are a bit are so willing to um to you know exaggerate the uh, how bad the nhs is uh i think that comes from a time when that was true mm. it was uh i mean to, to, to the extent that we have time series um, and, and can go back a couple of decades on outcome measures. In the 90s, that was absolutely true. The, the NHS was, uh, was, was miles behind the healthcare systems of other developed countries. Uh, it is still close to the bottom of most league tables on, on outcome measures. Um, cancer survival, stroke survival, uh, respiratory illnesses, um, mortality amenable to healthcare, so avoidable deaths, measures of avoidable deaths, those those sorts of measures, there you will always find, um, you will find systems like the Swiss one close to the top. And uh, then you get, uh, well, some, some systems are all over the place, good on some measures, bad on others. And then you get the ones uh, like the NHS that, that are always somewhere in the bottom third. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so those are the outcomes. Uh, cle no, clearly not the worst in the world, but just not what you would expect from a first world country. Mm -hmm. If you, uh, if I showed you a, a data plot where uh, which showed outcomes for various countries, but without labeling the plots, so that you had to guess which uh, which dot represents which country, um, you would. Uh, probably often mistake Britain for an Eastern European country because it would be in, in that in that sort of ballpark. Uh, mm. uh, Czech Republic, Slovenia, so the more prosperous parts of Eastern Europe, that's, that's roughly where it is. But you would not uh, mistake, um, you, you would not confuse Britain with Switzerland uh, on, uh -huh. if, 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 it's, uh, if it was a plot that showed health outcomes. That's roughly where we are. So, uh, so in that case, I mean, I know you're not a huge football fan, but if we're going to talk about, uh, you know, if we're talking low to mid table, you know, maybe like a Southampton football club is uh, where Britain is at the moment. 
and you compare it to... You're, you're, you're probably trying to troll someone here. <laughs> Nonsense, not at all. Um, but what would it take to get um, the, uh, in the UK healthcare system, the National Health Service, into, say, the Champions League places? Right. I, d I don't think that can be done within the current system. I think as far as uh, reform within the system can be achieved, I think we've we've gone almost as far as we can go. There was actually a lot. Uh, and and um, yeah, I didn't finish that part. That goes back to your earlier question. Why are uh, liberals, libertarians sometimes uh, exaggerating how bad mm. it is? Um, that's because it was true for, for a while that the NHS really was... Um, miles behind other systems, um, things have actually improved during the Blair years, uh, partly because of, of higher spending. Um, it was in the, only in the Blair years that Britain caught up with the Western European average on healthcare spending, but also because of, uh, of market reforms uh, to the extent that that's possible within a state monopoly system, that has happened. Um, for example, in the before Blair, uh, you would have had almost no choice of, uh, of of specialist and hospital care. So you, you would get a referral and you would go wherever your GP tells you to go. And then they, they did introduce uh, a system where you, you do get a degree of choice, um, often boycotted, often GPs will not tell you about this, but uh, it, it does exist in principle. Um, you can choose between NHS providers and sometimes willing private providers as well. And uh, they've also introduced a payment system where money follows patients. So that means uh, there is a degree now of competition within the service between the, the different uh, units within it. Um, different NHS trusts are more are now more like self-governing entities, and um, they do compete with each other up to a point. And that is something that has improved outcomes. So. Uh, we are still in the bottom third and most uh, most league tables, but the the distance between where we are and where the average is is uh, is now shorter than it used to be 20, 30 years ago. So it has improved in in relative terms, starting from a very low base, but nonetheless some some improvement. But then um, can that take can that be taken much further? Uh, I don't see how. I think uh, they they tried as good as they can. If we if we want to have, if we want to be among the best in the world healthcare wise, I think we have just have to adopt a different kind of system. Uh, we we have to look at what the the ones at the top are doing and have a system of that sort. So a Swiss style system. If you want Swiss style health outcomes, you have to have a Swiss style system. I'm curious because I remember, um, and this is going back a bit now, but that uh, I think in one of your first books about the National Health Service. You talked about how you could use the Blair reforms and sort of dial them up to 11 and so just to keep extending them out in order to reform the NHS. So are you saying that, that is, you don't think that that's possible anymore or is that what you mean when you say move to a different system? Yes, that, um, that would be a mechanism of getting there. I would, uh, what I wanted to make clear is that uh, when, when I say adopt a different healthcare system, that doesn't have to be disruptive. That doesn't mean that you shut down the NHS, that you wake up one morning and uh, there's no health service anymore. Mm. And then uh, over the next years, you build a completely different one. Um, it doesn't mean that it will be the equivalent of, um, of what happened in Central and Eastern Europe in, in the early 90s, that, uh, that one economic system is, is abolished and a completely new one replaces it. Uh, it wouldn't work 
that way you would just build the the new system out of the old one um by saying from now on you will get a free choice of of health insurers uh the nhs organizations at, a, at the moment allocate funding within the nhs they are in effect health insurers um, mm. they're not that's not what they're called, but that's that's what they do. That's they they pool money and allocate it to healthcare providers. That's what health insurers do mm-hmm. in a Swiss type system. So uh, I said you could simply convert those entities into actual companies and call them health insurers, mm-hmm. but but crucially give people choice. Uh, you 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 would be able to choose any of those in uh, wherever you live. Uh, any of those would be open to everyone. That would be open to private insurers as well, and. Um, you then introduce a, a competitive market and allow them to work out their own contracts with healthcare providers. And um, that could then mean that depending on which health insurer you choose, uh, healthcare would be delivered in, in quite different ways. Uh, in the way it, it does work in, um, in, the, in the Swiss system or the system of the Netherlands, where you can have some options where uh, you as a patient have a very high degree of choice. Uh, you go to whichever healthcare provider you want to, and your insurer just pays without otherwise getting involved. They, they, their role would be a very passive one. They just collect contributions and, and pay out um, the, the payments. And uh, But there are also more integrated models where a health insurer would say, we try to set up an integrated pathway where we connect primary care to specialist and hospital care and we try to come up with a more integrated model of healthcare delivery where you have less choice as an individual but it might it might uh, have other advantages it might be a more coordinated system and you can choose between these different models of organizing healthcare mm-hmm. and uh, that that would be the kind of system i would want to see Going back to the NHS as it is now at the moment, it, it feels like over the past 18 months, we've seen that the NHS, and you did say that uh, it ha- it's not catastrophically bad, it's, but it isn't the best performer in the world. But it does seem that the NHS doesn't cope very well with um, anything that is outside of its normal parameters. So winter crisis, it seems to have a yearly winter crisis, which I don't know if, how many times it has to happen to cease being a crisis. And becoming just the normal operation of the of the National Health Service over three months of, during winter. But, um, and as well, uh, I, th- I think we've spoken before about the uh, booster program and the difficulties that the NHS has had compared to the, uh, to, compared to the separate uh, vaccination body that was set up in order to administer the first round of vaccines, that the booster program has been a lot slower in comparison. Um, so why does the NHS have difficulty coping with crises and is it a bug of this is it a bug is it a, fi- a feature of the system is there anything that could be done within the current model um well first of all on the on the the booster program or the vaccination program more more generally um there we have to be fair on that uh, britain is actually among the best in the world when it comes to the rollout definitely the first time round, and uh, even now I mean, we, we now have about a third or, or just over a third of the population with a booster shot already. Um, that is well ahead of what we see in the EU at the moment. Although that, that is still an echo of the, the first wave, uh, the, the first, the original vaccine rollout program. It's um, 
what happened is that there has to be a time lag between when you get your, your second dose and when you, you qualify for the third one. It was originally, I think, half a year, and they've now shortened it to, I think it's now three months. Uh, but that means, of course, that the, the systems that were fast the first time round are now also the fastest ones now because they have more people who are eligible already. And uh, therefore, what we see now is, is more or less uh, an echo of the first round that you see the first, the same countries that were very fast the first time are very fast again. Now, uh, Britain is one of them. Uh, it's not the only one. Israel is, uh, is the star performer again. Uh, Chile is, um, I think, somewhere in between them or, or, or about on a par with Israel. So, but um, in any case, those would be the, the star performers of the first round of the vaccine. They are now among the best with the booster shot. But credit where it's due, that's, that's something which, uh, the, which the NHS has been doing well. Um, although I'd, I'd say partly because it's, uh, it's moved away from its usual way of, uh, of, of doing things and was more open to uh, involving others. That uh, in this case, it, there was no resistance, at least the first time around, to involve uh, pharmacies, to have um, some high street pharmacies, if they have the capacity to administer the vaccine rollout. And uh, that might be a reason why it's going a bit more slowly this time, that um, there was actually someone from the uh, from an industry association of, of the pharmacies that said they actually did volunteer and wanted to be part of that. And uh, only a small proportion of the pharmacies that wanted to enroll in the booster rollout uh, were actually accepted. So um, now we're going back to the uh, so something closer to the usual way of doing business. Uh, the NHS the trying to keep itself to itself and being hostile to outsiders. And um, and and as a result, we're, we're seeing some of the problems that we normally see. But still, on that, this this is still relatively good. Um, mm. We've now got up to, to a fairly high number. Yeah, I just want to push you a bit on that because... Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, you're right. I should have been a bit more generous to the, uh, to the British vaccination program, which has been very successful. But as I understand it, that's almost entirely because the government appointed outside uh, people from outside of the NHS to drive the program almost independently of the normal NHS bureaucracy. So does that mean that we, uh, if the problem is that if we require outside intervention to actually get through emergencies do we almost need a, a winter health czar in order to every appointed every year to um to get the nhs up to snuff okay i, I don't think what works in the vaccine program would work for other parts of uh, of healthcare because a vaccine program is a very curious type of um of program it's uh it's the sort of thing where even if you're the most uh, convinced free marketeer where uh, where I think you, you would expect a government program to do okay uh, because what, what government entities can often do successfully is uh, mobilize resources quickly and uh, and do repetitive tasks because that's what the vaccine program is it's it's a very it's uh, unlike other types of healthcare other types of healthcare are more individualized you have to respond to um the patient in front of you who is unlike the patient you may have been dealing with 10 minutes ago uh, each case is is different 
And in the case of the vaccine program, it's the exact opposite of that. It's it's something, it's it's a very monotonous um, kind of task. It's very repetitive. Um, you just have to get lots of needles into lots of arms. It's the sort of thing uh, where, I think I wrote about this for, for the spectator saying, if the Soviet Union was still around, I would expect them to do well on this because that's the sort of thing that, uh, that Soviet type economies uh, were good at. That, that would be the kind of very uh, easily scalable, repetitive tasks. It would be um, like conveyor belt production where um, you, you set up a production chain which has one task and it just does that in a, in a very repetitive way. Um, well, although, then again, maybe you could extend that to uh, some other parts of, of healthcare that um, I remember we had a, there was an IA publication on this about two years ago um, by, by Nima Sanandaji, Swedish economist. Hmm. Uh, he writes, he wrote about cost-cutting innovation in healthcare. And he said, almost all of the the cost-cutting innovations, the, the instances where operations that used to be very labor-intensive and, and expensive to do uh, can now be done at a fraction of the cost, but it's not happening in first world countries. It's happening in emerging economies. Mm-hmm. That in, in, um, in middle-income countries like China and India, they're setting up uh, highly um, standardized, uh, well, could almost call them healthcare factories where you have people who specialize in one type of procedure and do that again and again and again and again they do that can be open heart operations or eye surgery and um, rather than having the the more generalists um, uh, approach that, that we have they have an extremely high degree of specialization and have people who uh specialize in, in one or two specific tasks and repeat it over and over again. And they then just get very good and, uh, at doing it and, um, and very quick. And you have doctors who go through several operations a day where a Western doctor would do one or two. And, um, but the result is of that is that they are similar to Western countries in safety standards, but can do things at a fraction of the cost. And in their case, it's... Um, it's necessity being the mother of invention. They, they simply don't have the, the resources to set up a Western-type healthcare system. Uh, for, for them, it would be the choice between large numbers of people not getting the procedure at all or that way of doing things. And so they've, they've gone for that. Um, but whatever the reason, it does show that, uh, that even in healthcare, uh, it, for some procedures, standardization can be the way to go. Really interesting. One of the big excuses that defenders of the NHS make about, you know, and you've, uh, you alluded to this earlier about that uh, people, uh, people who argue that the NHS is the perfect system and it would be fantastic if only it were funded a little more. And I suspect this is almost like the reverse of the, um, of the free marketeer complaint about the NHS being terrible and awful. And that's a more, that the, in so far as it's more of a reflection of what once was rather than what is now. So I, I had a quick look at um, some figures before we came on, and the King's Fund projects that we'll be spending £16 billion in real terms core NHS funding, spending more in 2021-22 than in 2018-19. And that's an 11% increase, and that's before we've even talked about any of the additional money that, um, that was to fund uh, the cost of 
you know, COVID, the vaccination program, etc. So, is it a problem with funding? Is it, a, or is it a problem with, uh, you know, what's the what's the issue here? Do they have a point? Yes, historically, that's been true. As as you said, it's uh, that this this is a time lag between the argument we're having and the, the underlying reality. We're still talking about things as they were ten years ago. Often, uh, historically, it's been true in. Uh, in, in the 80s and 90s, Britain was clearly behind the Western European average in healthcare spending. And um, and, and that's, I, I suppose, just what you get when you have... Um, it's generally true that tax-funded systems are... Well, Britain in that period was, was an extreme case, but it's, it's also... Uh, it, it also used to be true in several other systems that they were... Uh, behind market-oriented, more market-oriented systems. That's just what, what happens when you have, when healthcare spending, when the healthcare budget is a political decision, um, that uh, it competes with various, with, with lots of other demands, and um, and it just sometimes then comes up short. And it's not, there have been attempts uh, to bring in ring-fenced funding. Uh, they're doing it now with this, this uh, the, the coming um, this extra social care levy or, or health and care levy. Uh, these are attempts to bring in ring-fenced, um, earmarked funds. It's just that that's hard to do in the kind of system that, that we have because, yes, you, you can introduce a tax and call it the NHS tax or, um, or the, the health and, and care tax. You can, you can give it a, an, an nhs sounding name uh, but you just have no way of controlling in practice that uh, that that money really will will go to uh, towards healthcare because ultimately it all goes into the same pot and then it's a political decision it can go on whatever uh, politicians say it will be spent on of course the the money they will raise from this particular levy that will go to the NHS but they can at the same time reduce the uh, the, the general NHS spending and uh, I think that's the general evidence on earmarked taxes that um, you can have taxes that are notionally pegged to a particular spending program but uh, there's no evidence that once you introduce such a tax now spending on that program really goes up because mm. politicians can then uh, just decrease other forms of uh, of spending, you, you can only really do that if you if the health system really is outside of politics. When you have funding institutions um, like health insurers that mm. are just separate from the political process, where the money that goes to to them really is theirs, and politicians never get their hands on it, where where you do know, and it does say on your pay slip, this is the health insurance contribution. It goes to the health insurer and. In that way to the healthcare system and if politicians wanted to divert it to something else well, tough luck they can't do that it's not it never goes uh, into their coffers um and um that would be one reason why in in, uh, in some other types of systems it is easier to raise healthcare spending uh here we have to issue that it's always possible uh, it's always popular if politicians say uh, we want to spend more money on the nhs but uh, we don't automatically vote for the party that promises the biggest um, uh, spending increases. Uh, and, and we don't generally trust politicians to raise, if they want to raise taxes, that's still unpopular. We don't trust mm. them to really put that money into the NHS. And so that's uh, why historically it's been true that, uh, that spending here 
was lower than in other systems. That changed in the player years. Um, Blair quite early on started with this pledge, uh, the, the NHS plan 2000, where he said within, I can't remember how many years, with, within a, a short time frame, we want to catch up with the European average. And they did. Um, what happened then was that we had the, uh, in, in the Cameron years, it's, uh, the NHS fell somewhat behind again in relative terms because mm-hmm. even though there was no there were no cuts to the NHS budget, the NHS budget is never cut literally. That that doesn't happen, but it was uh, increased uh, at a pace that barely kept pace with with demand increases, and um, so those were the the the, the Cameron years. Uh, that's out of date again. Uh, Austerity, the so-called austerity, that's that's long over anyway. In 2019, that's maybe that gives us the best idea. Uh, 2020 is, of course, a special case. Uh, mm-hmm. But in 2019, healthcare spending in Britain was almost identical to the Dutch level. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, if there's no reason to to uh, there's there's no reason to expect that the Dutch level is the optimum. I'm not, mm-hmm. not saying that. Uh, it's just that if you say the the that our system is underfunded, then the Dutch system would also be underfunded. You have to make the same claim for them. Yeah. Uh, but but if they can manage with that kind of budget, then why can't we? What, what's what's uh, what's the difference? And then of course the difference is that uh, they have a, a very different healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Now uh, even then, um, there are some systems that uh, that even in 2019 still did spend uh, more. Um, it's uh, even then. It's the NHS was not a high spender particularly uh, on a par with the Netherlands, but um, still a percentage point of GDP or more behind Germany, Switzerland, and and Sweden. Um, but then it's uh, those are systems. Uh, so certainly the the German system, um, which I know from from experience, that's a system which is just. Uh, vastly more generous. It offers you a, a lot of things that that you wouldn't get here. And um, for for example, people can do people can stay at spa resorts every couple of years. Uh, something that here we would think of as wellness, uh, as, as as fitness rather than healthcare. Uh, and and this would be fully paid by by the health insurer. And um, it's things like that, uh, and and um, some more more exotic things where where you have. Um, I know Chinese medicine and uh, herbal medicine, all kinds of uh, things that, that we would think of as wellness products rather than mm. rather than healthcare as such. There, you you can get them, and and uh, the health insurer will pay for it. And well, of course, if if you want that kind of standard, then you have to be prepared to pay more for it. That's why I never criticized the NHS for not offering me uh, a free spa resort holiday every four or five years uh, with with sauna and massage and everything. Uh, that's that's uh, that would be an unfair criticism. Um, if we want that sort of level, then we have to be prepared to spend more than eleven percent of GDP on. <laughs> well, I, I I wonder if that would be worth it. I could do with a looking out the window at the co- at the cold, miserable uh, uh, December day out there. I think I could do with a spa holiday somewhere. Yeah, definitely nice day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's finish off with the uh, because you've talked about um, the we've talked a lot about 
the system, how it's how you would look at eventually moving it to a different system. But according to many of our uh, our friends on the left, the, the NHS has been has been being privatized for at least I think the last twenty years. Um, why is it that the firstly for a privatization that's been going on for so long, it's we've done such a terrible job of it apparently because the NHS is still overwhelmingly state controlled. Um, or is there something more to it? Is there, is there actually not the, the privatization that they think there is going on? No, that, that was uh, always a conspiracy theory right from the start. And uh, when there are people, uh, it's, it's astonishing. There are, there are people who have been writing about this for 20 years. I found one uh, one author who has been writing about this for over for for about forty years, hmm. uh, or, or slightly more than than forty years, and um, it just keeps making the same prediction. Just keeps saying over and over again: the NHS is being privatized. It will be gone in a couple of years, and then in a couple of years, uh, the NHS is still there. He just keeps saying it, and um, so this this is a bit like one of those millenarian cults where uh, when. Where, where they say uh, on that date um, there's going to be there, there will be um, a flying saucer will will land and uh, they will save the chosen ones and uh, it will be the end of the world otherwise and uh, there's, there's all that going on but what's uh, what's astonishing is that um, these are not fringe voices they mm. keep uh, they have platforms uh, in the national in national newspapers. So the Guardian, obviously, Guardian is very keen on this. Guardian hosts several of these prophets, and uh, their readers never seem to get bored with it. They never seem to realize, uh, hang on, I've read this before. Why is why is the NHS still there? Um, so it, it comes in waves. It's it's often in the context of some uh, reform that's quite technical. Uh, quite boring. Nobody quite knows what's what's in it, really. Uh, you get someone saying, "Ah, oh, well, it's a Trojan horse for privatization," and then and then a panic breaks out. Uh, we, we currently have this with the the health and care bill, mm. but we've had an, an almost exact it's it's an almost exact repetition of what happened a decade ago uh, with the health health and social care act of two thousand and twelve, where even before it took effect, um, it was the BMA, the trade unions, um, the Guardian, the New Statesman, they were all over it, peddling this idea that uh, this is the Trojan horse, this is the, the privatization bill. And um, there was uh, an Owen Jones article from, I think, 2002. 12 uh, where he said uh, rest in peace nhs um <laughs> diagnosis murder murdered by tory ideologues and um and and of course you always get these uh, these outbreaks uh, these moral panics and then after a couple of years it uh, it starts to die down uh because uh, well the reform has passed and it's mm. now part of the of the new normal but uh it you never get a soul searching. You never get people saying, "Okay, I, I was a bit, uh, I, I was clearly overegging that pudding a bit." Um, it hasn't happened. But by the time it becomes clear that this latest Trojan horse was no such thing, there's already a new moral panic in town. By mm -hmm. then, they they will already have jumped 
to uh, have latched onto a new course and say, ah, for, forget everything we said earlier. This is the Trojan horse. This is it yeah. now. This is really the the uh, the, the final uh, step towards privatization. But mm. this has really been going on since at least 1980. Mm. I mean, I think I remember. Uh, yes, I think I remember a pub quiz or something I did once where uh, somebody read out a quote from uh, saying, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, this is the Conservatives, should they get into government, will destroy the National Health Service and return to a system where only the rich can afford um, healthcare. And I think the answer was from, it was from a Labour manifesto of something like 1955 or, nine, you know, so this is, it seems like as long as the NHS has been around, there's been people saying that uh, the next election will see the end of it. So that's, um, that's uh, very interesting. Um, thank you very much, Christian. It's, uh, I really appreciate you taking uh, taking some time out to talk to us about the National Health Service. Um, and uh, for everybody who's still watching at this point, uh, please make sure that you uh, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the bell button so that you are made aware of uh, any new videos we put up. And uh, if you have a particular interest in supporting our digital content, the IA has a Patreon page go online, become one of our patrons, very small amount every month, uh, and hopefully we will help us provide more fantastic videos, as good or even better, if possible, than this one next year. Thank you very much. Goodbye.